0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, let's open it to Romans chapter 1 is where we left off last week. And as Robert mentioned a little bit earlier this morning, our custom is just to work our way through books of the Bible and as God would have it. Um, on this child dedication Sunday, we find ourselves in the second path, half of Romans chapter one, which quite frankly, is is one of the more difficult, but actually, I think clear passages in the whole Bible. And so uh, if you're kind of wondering why we're here this morning, it's just because this is our custom. We think that this is the best way to approach God, not through a topic first, that then we sort of gather verses around to support but just rather through God's Word as He has revealed it to us. And so where He and His providence has us this morning is verses 26 through 32 of Romans chapter 1. As we work through this book, it's going to take us all year likely to get through all of Romans. Um, and so, if you don't have a Bible, you, I think you'd be really helped to use one of the ones that's in the rack in front of you. You can take that Bible, and you can find Romans one on page seven thirty six or nine thirty nine of the of the copy that you have in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that Bible as our gift to you. We're going to have the passages that we read, the, especially the text Romans one twenty six through thirty two on the screen this morning. But I think you'd be really helped if you had your own copy of God's Word in front of you so that you can, you can see it. And again, if you don't own a Bible, take that as our gift to you. As we're dealing with this difficult topic, um, there's two things, two burdens that I, I want, uh, a couple that I have f- as I begin, is that although the issue in this text primarily is human sexuality and one particular expression of it, homosexuality, really the issue is not so much. And this is the point of Romans 1, especially the second half, it's not so much any particular fruit on the tree of human rebellion, but it's the root of human rebellion. So I don't want us to lose, although we're going to handle this issue pretty clearly, I think. And we're going to zero down in on it because I want us as a church to be equipped to understand this very controversial topic culturally. I want us to be able to understand it biblically, let's not lose the the forest from the trees. As we maybe stare at one tree in the forest in particular this morning, because I think that's what is warranted for us as we just work through God's Word, let's not miss the greater point that Paul is making in Romans 1. And I think today is a wonderful opportunity for us to clarify what the gospel is, and What Jesus has done for sinners, which is all of us, not just a particular type of sin. So let's remember that. Secondly, I realize that there's no way that we can handle all of the things that we need to say about this very challenging issue uh, in just one setting. So we have some resources that uh, we'd love to point you to in our resource room. We have a couple books that I think are just excellent. Um, One is called, uh, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? And this is written by a pastor. His name is Kevin DeYoung. He pastors up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's an excellent, clear, relatively short theological uh, explanation of, of what the Bible teaches, and, and he would agree with everything that I'm, in fact, I would agree with everything that he says, and this is an excellent, faithful teaching. A second book, which is actually smaller, is a book by a pastor from England, and his name is Sam Alberry. He's a, he's a present-day pastor. I know most of the English pastors that I quote are dead and lived back, like, in the 17th. This guy's actually very much alive. Um, he pastors in England. And he wrote a book called, a very short book called, Is God Anti-Gay? And Other Questions About Homosexuality, the Bible, and Same-Sex Attraction. What makes this book particularly helpful is that Sam Albury, this pastor in England, himself uh, struggles with same-sex attraction. And he is a Christian who has decided to take God's side against his sin and is living a celibate lifestyle and is actually a wonderful, clear voice for the biblical understanding of human sexuality and he speaks with a lot of compassion because this is something that he is wrestling with in his own life but yet he is a born-again believer who's taking God's side. This is really, really helpful. I'd commend those two books to you. All right, let me read Romans, 20, Romans 1, 26 through 32 and I'm going to give you the outline up front and it's just going to be up on the screen for a large part of the service. So we'll just put it up there as we look through the, at this passage. We're going to look at, uh, first, What Romans 1 says, we're going to look at the issue of homosexuality, and then what the whole Bible says about it, just a very quick, brief survey. Then we're going to look at four questions that our culture and many people often have about the biblical, I think, right and correct understanding of homosexuality and and human sexuality. And these four questions are often really objections that our culture has. So we're going to try and handle those objections uh, compassionately, but clearly and biblically. And then we'll end with just a few pastoral encouragements for us as a church. So before I read, let me pray and uh, ask the Lord to help us. And that that outline will stay on the screen um, as kind of the default if you're wanting to write that down. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Your word, as we've been reading in Romans 1, tells us that you have revealed yourself generally to all mankind through the glory of creation but you've also revealed yourself specifically through your Son and through your word. He, as John 1 says, has made you known. Christ, fully man, yet fully God, the second person of the Trinity, has come. And you have caused men over many different centuries to write your word down and you've preserved it for us and it's come to us. And even when it is hard And even when it confronts us in our natural inclinations, it is good. So may we see the goodness of your word this morning. I pray for my friends in this room who are already believers in Jesus, that you would stir our affections, humble us, deepen our love for the glory of salvation. And for my friends that are in this room that are not yet trusting in Jesus, I pray that you would even take this difficult at times, in our culture's eyes, controversial topic, that we might see it through the lens of what the Bible says, that you might warm our hearts, that you might draw people to the beauty and sufficiency of Jesus. Lord, may we humble yourself underneath the authority of your word. May you help my words to be clear and concise and true. If there's anything that I say this morning that is not correct or it doesn't have the right tenor or tone, I pray that my words would fall to the ground and be forgotten but if there's anything that I say this morning that's clear and good and true may it stick fast to our hearts and we know that this can only happen by your Holy Spirit that is in this room now and it's present in the lives of believers and it's hovering over even the unbelievers now and we pray by your kindness that the Spirit might become this morning irresistible and overpower any resistance in this room to the beauty of your truth, to your good word. And we pray it in Jesus' name for his glory and our joy. Amen. Romans 1, starting in verse 26. We're starting, obviously, middle way through this chapter. I'll catch you up with the context if if you're a little lost at the beginning. Paul writes, For this reason God gave them up, And them is all humanity, but he's speaking specifically to Gentiles. In other words, non-Jewish people. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Okay, lots for us to to get into this morning. The first thing that we need to handle is Romans 1 and what it says about homosexuality and then... We're going to look just briefly at what the whole Bible says about homosexuality. First, a quick review of last week because we just jumped in to the last quarter of this chapter here. We looked at last week at the beginning of this this section, which really starts at verse 18, how God's wrath has been revealed to all mankind. And this comes on the heels of verse 16 and 17, which is really the high point of the first chapter of Romans. In fact, it's really the theme of the whole letter where Paul, after he's just greeting the church at Rome and saying hello to them, telling them why he's writing to them, then says in verse 16 and 17 that the righteousness of God has now been revealed through the gospel. And of course we know, and in fact the rest of the book of Romans is this uh, further explanation of what Paul means by that phrase, that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And what he means by that is now God has made a way for guilty sinners, which is all of humanity, to be made righteous through the gift of Jesus who comes as the righteous one, the only true righteous one, fully God yet fully man, and then lays down his life on the cross to bear the wrath of God and give us his righteousness for all those who would trust in him. And so Paul is really setting up his thesis at the beginning of the book by saying that this is how God, a holy God, can draw guilty sinners to himself who are completely unable to make themselves righteous. God is going to give this righteousness as a free gift. And we might expect at that moment, right after verse 17, for Paul to launch into a further explanation of how this righteousness, this Christ's righteousness is given to us. And he does that. But he doesn't get there until midway through Romans 3. At, at verse 18, he takes a left turn, and he now he says the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, this is the way of salvation. And then in verse 18, he says the wrath of God has been revealed against all humanity. And it kind of jolts us. It's like ammonia underneath our nostrils, and it wakes us up to the reality that the salvation that Paul is going to exult in, in the rest of Romans, is... A result of the necessity of the salvation, which is the fallenness of mankind. And that's what he zeroes in on on verses 18 through the end of Romans 1. And he spends all of chapter 2 doing the same as he, at that particular chapter, then indicts the Jews who have God's law. And so he says the wrath of God has been revealed against mankind who has suppressed the truth of God. How has mankind suppressed the truth of God? Well, Paul says that God has created a world. He's created everything in such a way, and he's put a kind of radar in every human being so that we should be able to see God from the very things that have been created. He says it's obvious to mankind, but mankind is like a child trying to hold a beach ball underneath the water. He, Paul says, suppresses the truth. And because mankind has suppressed what is clearly known about God through his general revelation, the Bible says that mankind is without excuse. We should know God, but we don't know God because we've rejected God. We've suppressed the truth about God. And we haven't only suppressed the truth about God, we have substituted for God created things. So we've taken the creator, And we have exchanged him for created things. And so we would rather worship created things rather than the creator who alone is sufficient and blessed forevermore. Amen, Paul says at the end of verse 25. And now in verse 26, Paul is just making, he's just amplifying the point that he was making last week that God's wrath is rightly upon all of humanity Who willfully suppresses God, exchanges God for created things, and because man has done that, God is pouring out his wrath, not merely as an end time reality, the wrath that will come someday at the end, certainly that's true, but even what mankind is experiencing now in his idolatry, as he worships created things rather than the creator, is a kind of wrath that God is giving over mankind to even now. So God in his mercy, we said last week, is God saying, no, no, not your will be done, but my will be done. In other words, God mercifully will override human will to save it. But God's wrath, God's judgment, is the scary phrase that God says to humanity. And this is Paul's point in Romans 1. Okay, you want to do it that way? Have it your own way. And that's the point that Paul is making. And now, in the passage that we just read this morning, Paul takes a kind of amplification. He kind of zooms in and he looks at one particular sin, the sin of homosexuality, not, hear me on this, not because Paul is saying that that sin somehow will keep you out of heaven whereas the others are just kind of minor. No, Paul is not saying that. But he is zeroing in on homosexuality as a kind of picture of the starkness, the poignancy of mankind's rebellion against creator God, who has created mankind male and female in such a way that they complement one another. And even anatomically, their bodies complement one another to say something about God and homosexuality, Paul's point in Romans 1, is a kind of defiance. It's not merely disordered affections or passions, but it's a kind of consequence that God gives man over to, and Paul zeroes in on it because it is a particular stark representation of the very thing that Paul is saying in Romans 1 that mankind is rebelling against their creator who has made them for him. So that's Paul's point. That's what he's saying in Romans 1, 26 through 32. So just a summary of Romans 1. Uh, look, Well, let me, let me just back up and let me just say, for those of us that are still kind of wondering, maybe we've never read these passages before. Let's just kind of look at some of the phrases that Paul uses to describe this particular aspect of human fallenness, where some people would engage in sexual relations with people of the same gender. He says, a couple of verses before, we didn't read it this morning, but he says in verse 24 that it's a, a dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. He says that it is a dishonorable passion. He says that it's contrary to, to nature, for women to be with women and for men to be with men. He says, he calls it a shameless act in verse 27. And he says that as a result of these unnatural, contrary to nature actions of sexuality that mankind is giving himself over to, that they worthily receive the due penalty for their heir, which in the context of Romans 1 is the wrath of God. Now, again, I can't say this enough. God is not, and Paul is not, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, singling out homosexuality as a kind of unpardonable sin or something that has greater power to keep you separated from God and outside of heaven over other sins. He's using it as a kind of stark picture, a direct affront, a poignant example of how mankind, one example amongst many, but one example of how mankind shakes his fist at the creator God and suppresses the truth. God's wrath has been revealed. Mankind has suppressed it. He's without excuse. Man exchanges the creator for the creature. As a result, his heart and mind is darkened. God gives, that, gives mankind over, and one poignant example of that that Paul is using to make a point is the sin of homosexuality. Well, let's broaden the scope a little bit before we look at some objections to what I think is the clear teaching of this passage. Let's broaden the scope and look at what the Bible says in whole about this. It's not, there's not much debate that in the Old Testament it clearly condemns the same sex, attraction, and behavior. In the book of Leviticus, when Moses is writing about the holiness code and how people are to approach God and to be clean, he says in Leviticus 18, verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And there are many other verses we could read, but let's just let that suffice from Leviticus that clearly it was against the Old Testament law. But in the New Testament, we find it We find it as well condemned in 1 Corinthians 6. Look at what 1 Corinthians 6 says, verse 9. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And friends, again, we can't make this point enough. That's all of us before Jesus saves us. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, people who remain in their sin are separated from God. But here's the glory of the gospel, verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. Something happened to you. Jesus came into your life. He made you new. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The clear teaching of that scripture, is that all people are sinners, and Paul doesn't name every sin here, but he names several large categories, the sexually immoral, which is any sexual activity outside the one flesh union between a man and a woman in marriage, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, the clear teaching there from Paul. Go to 1 Timothy um, chapter 1, and it'll be on the screen for you if you don't want to flip. Again, we see clearly that the Bible teaches that all sin, but in particular, for the purposes of our discussion today, as we're looking at this issue, we see homosexuality mentioned again. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners. Who's that? Everybody before Jesus saves them. For the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else. So again, he's not mentioning all categories of sin exclusively, but whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so we see here that the Bible clearly teaches, we could read others, but the Bible clearly teaches that to give ourselves over to any type of sexual activity, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, outside of the bounds of one flesh union between a man and a woman in marriage, and that phrasing's important, to give ourselves over, meaning to be unrepentant, all of us. Let me just make this point. Every person in this room that is past the age of puberty to some degree, wrestles, has wrestled with sexual sin and temptation. And the clear sexual ethic that the Bible is presenting to us from the Old Testament to the New is that to give yourself over to your inordinate sinful sexual desire, which is everybody, to give yourself over to that and to not fight against that sin and take God's side against your sin will keep you separated from a holy God. So do you see what the Bible's saying? It's saying it's not zeroing in on one particular brand of sexual desire outside of God's plan or sexual sin. It's, it's, it's magnifying. It's saying that everybody is guilty before God. And what it means to be Christian is to be washed, to be renewed. And we know that to be washed and renewed does not mean here in this life that we are finally free of temptation, but it means that we take God's side against our sin, not giving over to it because we have been given a new heart that has new desires that as it grows is ever more able as you mature to take God's side against that sin. But the clear verdict of biblical truth is that all human deviant sexuality, hetero or homosexuality, is outside of God's plan. And that has led the majority of the church, for the history of the church, until just the last few decades in America, to conclude rightly that homosexual practice, along with every other manner of sexual immorality, is a sin. It's not the unpardonable sin. A Christian can be a true Christian and struggle with all manner of sin to include same-sex attraction. But to give yourself over to it is outside of God's bounds for what it means to be right with Him and with Him for eternity. I think of that quote that I quote often from William Arnaud. Remember the British theologian in the 1800s, he said that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, that the Christian is taking God's side against their sin, growing in grace because of their new heart, whereas the non-Christian is taking sin's side against a dreaded God. So four questions questions—it really are, in many ways, objections to what I think is the clear teaching of Romans 1, 26 through 32, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, Leviticus, and other parts of the Bible. Four objections or questions. The first one is, and this I think is the most common, is that, well, did Jesus even address this issue? I mean, there's nowhere recorded in Scripture where Jesus actually says the word homosexuality. And so the implication being, if Jesus didn't address it, and specifically he didn't, why are we making such a big deal about it? Well, let me say this, is that Jesus did not name... He didn't use the word homosexuality, but he does speak about it. Let me show you. In Matthew chapter 18, we see this really important text where Jesus is speaking about what defiles a person. It'll be on your screen. Matthew chapter 15. Jesus says this, chapter 15, verse 18. He says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Again, Jesus doesn't name every sin that's possible for humanity, but he just names categories there. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Look again at verse 19. He says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. Now, the word that the original book of Matthew was written in the biblical language of Greek. That Greek word that we translate in English as sexual immorality is the Greek word "porneia," and in fact, it's where we get our our English word "pornography." But that Greek word had a wide scope of meaning. Basically, it was a catch-all phrase that meant all deviant human sexual behavior outside of marriage between one man and one woman. So embedded in that word porneia is adultery, lust, homosexuality, all manner of sin. So Jesus doesn't name it, but he does include it. In this book by Sam Alberry, Is God Anti-Gay? He gives this really interesting and I think helpful illustration for us to see this. And I'll give it to you. Just imagine if... I said today, you know, I'm really glad that you guys came today, and as a result of coming to Cross Point on February 26, 2017, on your way out, the ushers are going to be standing by the door, and everybody in here is going to get a $100 bill. Just imagine, I'm not going to say that, by the way, that's not, that's not going to happen, but I, you're like, man, lunch is going to be good today, but imagine I said, everybody in here gets a, a $100 bill on their way out. Well, maybe I haven't named you specifically, but I have included you, haven't I? That's what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 15. He doesn't name every expression of human sexual deviancy, but he does include every expression of it. And then I think even more compelling is what Jesus has to say about marriage. Just go a couple chapters over to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. And I think this is the most compelling and clear case for what the Bible says about human sexuality as Jesus links it directly to marriage between a man and a woman. Listen to Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And what's going on here is that in the Old Testament, there were sort of two schools of Pharisees. There were two schools of thought there was a liberal and a conservative school. The uh, liberal school of thought about divorce, the liberal theologians would say, "Uh, you know, a man can divorce his wife for any reason, even if she's not a good cook. She doesn't wash the dishes, uh, you know, adequately. A man can just cast her aside. Obviously, that's horrific, isn't it? But then the more conservative side of the jewish theologians in the old testament would would say no no the only reason that a man can lawfully divorce his wife is for um, infidelity chronic unrepentant infidelity and so these these pharisees these pharisees of jesus's time are kind of coming to him asking him kind of which camp he falls into And this is what Jesus says to them in verse four. He answered them, and this was kind of a little. If you're, you're, you know, you're savvy with the relationship between Jesus and the Pharisees and who the Pharisees thought they were, this is like a, a a slap in the face. He says to these Pharisees who considered themselves to be experts in the Old Testament. He says, "Have you not read?" That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, you experts, you know that book that you consider to be expert. Have you read the first chapter of Genesis 1? I mean, we kind of read that like sweetly, like Jesus is walking around with feathered hair, like hugging everybody. This is Jesus busting their chops. Hey, experts, have you read the first chapter of the book that you consider yourself to be an expert on? What does it say? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let no man separate. And so do you see what Jesus is doing here? This is really important for you to see. He is linking the very created order, he's linking the complementary nature of gender with marriage. Do you see that? And he's saying that men and women are created in such a way that they are designed to complement one another and to come together in one flesh. Now, I don't have to draw any pictures for you, boys and girls, do I? But you understand how the human male body and the human female body complement one another, even anatomically. And that coming together in one flesh, expressed in its height in sexual intimacy, is a kind of picture of what it means to be human. And do you see how... The contradiction of that is man saying, no, although you've created me for a particular purpose, I am going to go in the other direction and do what I want with the creation that you have given to me. Embedded in Jesus' understanding of what it means to be man and woman and then marriage being between a man and a woman, itself settles the issue. And then Jesus even presses in even further. At this point, these Pharisees are like, oh, my gosh. I mean, they're not necessarily thinking about homosexuality in this particular instance, but they're thinking about, oh, my gosh, if I marry this girl and she ends up not being a good cook, oh, I'm stuck with her. Jesus is like, yes. Because you're a bonehead, too, and she's stuck with you. And then, so th- look what they say to Jesus. They're like, they're, it's like they're getting cold feet. And they're saying, man, if this is, the, this is the way marriage is, if it's meant not just for my sort of temporal satisfaction, but it's meant to display something about what it means to be human and the one flesh union that we're going to see actually points to the gospel. And Jesus is the heavenly groom's relation with his bride, the church. If it's meant to be something so serious, man, I don't even know if I want any part of this. And so then they said to him in verse seven, why then did Moses? I command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away. And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So he's saying, yes, there's reasons why marriages may end in this earth, but that's not God's plan. Then verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man and with his wife, it is better not to marry. Like if that's how hard it's going to be, I don't even want a part of this they're saying. And then look what Jesus has to say about those who are not married about those who are celibate and single. He says, But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And so Jesus... After they say, gosh, I don't even know if we should get married because marriage is between a man and a woman and it's meant forever and we should stay that way, should we even do this? And Jesus says, yeah. And the only other category for humanity is the gift of celibacy and singleness for the sake of the kingdom of God. And we relate later in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul actually calls singleness, celibacy, a gift. Oh, friends, how miswired we are, even as heterosexuals, to present our heterosexualness as the height of human experience. It's not! People are not incomplete merely because they are not sexual beings or people that express themselves sexually. Jesus says there are only two legitimate expressions for relationships Sexually between men and women. One is marriage between a man and a woman for life. And the other is celibacy. That's it. That means that there will be heterosexuals who for some calling of God's kingdom will have to remain in their singleness so that they cannot be burdened by the burdens of marriage and give themselves wholly to the service of God. And that's why also some people who may have disordered sinful Inclinations in their hearts will have to take God's side against them to display to an onlooking world that there is something better than being sexually gratified by your own desires in this life. Taking God's side against your sin is better. It's better. Jesus did address it. He addressed it very clearly. Jesus paints a clear picture of what it means to be human, what it means to be male and female. And he says it's tied to the complementary nature between men and women. The second objection is, well, aren't you being inconsistent with the Old Testament? Because you know what? Part of the Old Testament law, like we read in Leviticus 18, is that a man should not lie with a man. Okay, I see that it says that. But you know what? I also noticed, and I've been looking around this room, and some of you have mixed shirts, part polyester, part cotton. And I bet you some of, the, some of you this morning had bacon for breakfast. You undefiled, you unclean Gentiles. Because part of the Old Testament law is also eating bacon and pork is outside of God's law and wearing shirts with two types of fabric. Well, if you're going to pick and choose from the Old Testament, why can we eat whatever we want now, but yet you're still holding up this Old Testament sanction against homosexual behavior? Friends, if you've ever gotten that objection, or maybe you have wondered about that objection yourself, when people say that, they completely display, they put on display how much they really don't understand how the Bible fits together. That's not the way the Bible works. It's not so mechanical. It's a beautiful mosaic. And this is the purpose of the Old Testament law. It's not just some mechanical system where you can pick and choose parts of it. But Jesus says about the whole Old Testament law that it's meant to point us to Jesus. This is what what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, that God gives this law, 613 different regulations about how Old Testament Israel is supposed to live. And these laws ran the gamut. Some of them had to do with the heart and what it meant to to honor God. And some of them had to do, in fact, a great multitude of these laws had to do with ritual cleanness and purity that the people would purify themselves as they prepared themselves to approach a holy God. And they would have to do sacrifices and offer all of these sacrifices and grains and kill animals and all these ritual purity things. And Jesus says that all of this is pointing to him and that he says in the Sermon on the Mount that he has not come to abolish that law but to fulfill it. And so a great portion of the Old Testament law is, in fact, all of it is fulfilled in Christ. But as we look at the purpose of that Old Testament law, we see great portions of it like these cleanliness laws about what you can eat and not eat and what you can wear we see them be like booster rockets. They're like Old Testament pictures that point to the greater reality of what it means to approach God in purity. And they fall away as Jesus comes and, and fulfills that for us. Now, the way to approach God is not by sacrificing an animal, but by trusting in the one true sacrifice that is Jesus. Jesus. So the reason why we don't sacrifice animals anymore to enter into God's holy place is because Jesus has sacrificed himself once and for all. So for us to still hold in force all of these ritual purity laws, like what we can eat and the type of fabric of our clothes, would undercut the very truth of the gospel that Jesus has made a way for us. But yet there were also portions of the Old Testament law that spoke about the inner life, the heart, the desires, which is the whole point of Jesus's work to give us a new heart. These issues of what we long for and who we are and what we do with our bodies, and all of those don't fall away. In fact, they're reinforced in the New Testament. Jesus will say things like, yeah, don't just look at the Ten Commandments, where it says, don't just lust after your neighbor's wife, or don't just uh, have a relationship with your neighbor's wife, but don't even lust after her. So Jesus actually zeroes in. And we see the sexual ethic of the Old Testament repeated and picked up in the New Testament and in fact amplified. So the Bible is not inconsistent with itself. But we must understand how the Old Testament points towards the new, and there are portions of the law that fall away as Jesus fulfills it all for us. But the inner portions of what the law is ultimately pointing to are still in force for the Christian. A third objection is, is that some people will say, well, it's not the same kind of homosexuality that's mentioned in the Bible. And the argument goes like this, that what is being rejected in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 and other places is what's called exploitive homosexuality where maybe one person is molesting another or forcing another into this type of maybe like a uh, a master and a slave rape or molestation the problem with that is there's just there's no evidence for this biblically in fact there's much archaeological evidence of consensual same-sex relationships in ancient times and in biblical times there's poetry and artwork and literature all which reference the existence of consensual homosexual relationships. And even in our text in Romans 1 verse 27, it says that the men were consumed with passion for one another, pointing us towards this, I think, clear reality that what Paul has in view here is homosexual practice between two people who are inflamed with sinful passion for one another. The fourth and final question or objection. And I think we all have wondered this maybe at some point in our lives. Well, if it's not hurting anyone, why make such a big deal about it? And besides, we're all sinners, right? Well, that's right. None of us are perfect, and only Jesus is, and only he can save us from our sins. But imagine this scene with me. Imagine that there are two people, two houses, two neighbors, and as fate would have it, both of their houses are on fire. They're both having a house fire. One guy notices that he has a fire in his kitchen and he's trying to pour out pour water on it to put the fire out. As he's doing that, he looks through his kitchen window and he sees into his neighbor's kitchen and he sees that his neighbor's house is also on fire. But he notices that his neighbor is sitting in the couch completely unaware asleep. Imagine if the guy whose house is on fire and knows it looks at his neighbor who's asleep but whose house is also on fire and he concludes, you know what, my house is on fire too. I mean, it would be kind of, I don't know, would it be sort of, you know, kind of judgmental of me to say to this guy that his house is on fire. So I'll just kind of, I mean, if he figures it out, he figures it out. I'm just going to take care of my fire. (laughs) What would we say to that guy? I mean, come on. Friends, if we understand sin, all human sin and its consequences, then love compels us to be clear about this, not because we're perfect, but because Jesus is perfect, and he's the only one that can put out the fire of sin in all of humanity. And of course we do this with compassion and grace and brokenhearted boldness. But friends, it is not loving to not warn someone of something that will ultimately separate them from God forever. And I think this is just a consequence of the softness and the insecurity of our culture. We can't call truth, truth, because we are so scared that it might ostracize us socially from the world. And as a result, the Christian church has its tail between the legs in many instances and has lost their prophetic voice to a world that is on fire. And we are standing by watching it because God forbid we be on the outs with our neighbors. Friends, that's not love. That's hate because it's inordinate self-love. You care more about yourself and our own, our own sort of social standing than we do the person, right? And of course, we know examples where Christians err on this and they overdo it and they, they come from a judgmental side. So, so that, that's one side of the ditch that we fall into. The other side of the ditch is that we just become some holy rollers or act like we have it all together. And friends, that's just as much of a wrong approach as to not say anything. But we come with broken hearted boldness knowing that we, along with all humanity, even if we're not struggling with that particular stripe of sin, we know that the only hope is Christ. And we come not because we're basically good and boy, I've never had to deal with anything like that. No, we come with a biblical understanding of sin and salvation and we know that all humanity is without hope apart from Christ. And even if I'm a good little moral church kid who grows up in Sunday school and VBS and all those things, I can, if I'm trusting in my own righteousness, be just as lost, lest Christ saves me, than as, as just as lost as the person who's steeped in all manner of unrighteousness. And when we have that biblical understanding, it humbles us, right? And it emboldens us to care about people. And by the way, This is the way it should be. This is the way we should live life in the local church. This is why living together in a local church that takes the Bible seriously and is filled with people who understand the gospel and have been humbled by it is so important. Because who can navigate through these dicey waters on their own? Nobody can. Nobody can posture themselves rightly in our culture in a biblical, winsome, caring, compassionate, bold sort of way on their own. You get worn down and we all get cranky and we all get hypocritical. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to know each other's lives. That's why you need to be part of a church. That's why you need to know who your pastors are. That's why they need to know who you are. That's why your life needs to be open to other Christians that you are linking arms with because sin is real, salvation is true, and the wrath of God is revealed against all humanity that doesn't repent and believe in Jesus. And God has given us his word and the family of God to clarify these things. Friends, we are not playing tiddlywinks here. I'm not just here to tell you some silly little story, a little Aesop's fable, read you a little cute thing, send you out in 20 minutes. Don't, let's not do that. Let's not play that game. Let's not just play the religious veneer game for the sake of social status in Columbus, Georgia. It is appalling to live like that. Don't do it. Don't do it. Come on, These, what's at stake here is souls and eternity and the glory of God. Let me end on a few pastoral encouragements. Let's not miss the bigger point that Paul is making here. We're all in some way by our nature shaking our fist at God, all of us, and we all need the grace of the gospel. Let's not miss what this passage says about what it means to be human. One objection may be, well, what about people who say that they're, they're born this way? A person may say, I've, I've been born this way with these inordinate desires And several years ago, we had a young man who was part of this church. He was a member of this church. He is a Christian. He's trusting in Christ. He was a student at CSU. And he said that ever since he can remember from a little boy, there's nothing that happened to him, no event, no sin against him, just came from a good home with a mom and dad, that ever since he was a little boy, as long as he can remember, he's been attracted to other boys. God, in his grace, rescued this young man from his sin, gave him a new heart. And this young man still, I'm in contact with him today, is taking God's side against his sin. He moved on after he graduated from CSU and got a job and is now working. And even though he has same-sex desires, just like this pastor who wrote this book, he's choosing to take God's side against his sin. And friends, when we kind of say, oh, yeah, but he was, for whatever this means, and I'm not getting to a, a, a scientific discussion about humanity, but for whatever this phrase means, born this way, friends, we need to realize we're all born this way doesn't mean that we're all same-sex attracted, given to that, but it means that we're all born as opposed to God. Let's not give into that presupposition. We are all born sinners. And the reality of the gospel for the person who's Attracted to the same gender or whoever is that we all must take God's side against our sin. And the only hope of that happening is Jesus first giving us the ability to do that. Friends, we're all born in sin. That doesn't somehow let somebody off the hook. And on that same note, friends, as Christians who the majority of us are heterosexual, let's not make an idol out of heterosexuality. And let's not make an idol out of the family, the biological family. Friends, do you realize? In fact, this may be the most controversial thing I say today. You'd be like, I was with you till then, but by golly. (laughs) Friends, do you realize that the Bible actually relativizes the importance of biological family and exalts the importance of the spiritual family? But in Christian culture today, we act like being married and have good little kids that obey and do is the height of human existence. Now, that's certainly a good gift. But friends, that's not what everybody's called to. Some people, God has given the gift of celibacy and there's nothing incomplete about that person. Some people are born with a type of just result of the fallenness of humanity that they have same-sex attraction and they may die that way but they're taking God's side against their sin and they will never have a husband or a wife or a child but they will hold up the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus and they aren't just half human they are full human Jesus was the most satisfied and complete human that ever lived and he never had sex and never was married and never had children Friends, when we make an idol out of marriage and the American dream, we lie about what it is to truly be human. And then finally, let's not miss the gospel and our utter dependence on it. Again, friends, the issue isn't so much homosexuality. I've zeroed in on that because it was in the text and because I want to equip you as the church that I've been given to shepherd with a biblical perspective on these things. But a biblical perspective on these things doesn't just stop at homosexuality. It actually looks at what it means to be human and what our only hope is. I've said it so often today. We are born in sin and our only hope is Jesus. The only hope for heterosexual sinners is Christ. The only hope for the college kid that's in this room right now that is heterosexual, that is fooling his community because he's giving himself over to pornography and heterosexual sin, and he's tricking himself because he thinks he's not so bad that he can kind of do that. The only hope for that guy is Christ the only hope for the young lady that is heterosexual that grows up in this sin soaked culture that is so warped in her self-image that she thinks that the only way that she has any esteem or value is if she can make herself attractive to some knucklehead guy the only hope for that girl to be rescued from that muck and mire is Christ The only hope for the person who has made an idol out of finding a spouse and having children, the only hope for that person to be rescued out of that idol which will not satisfy and will not save is Christ. The only hope for the person that's been born with deviant sexual desire that expresses itself in attraction to the same gender, the only hope for that person is Christ. Friends, the problem is sin, and it's universal, and the answer is Christ, and it's the only way. And this is what Jesus has done. He's taken heterosexual sin. He's taken homosexual sin, and he's taken the punishment that rightly should be born for it, and he lived a perfect life, and he laid down his life to Bear the wrath, the punishment, the justice of God for the sin of all those that would turn and trust in Him. So now the issue is not what what type of sin do you have? But who will stand in your place for your sin? And Jesus has done that for all that will trust in him, who will say no to their deviant desires, who will say no to the way they were born, who will say no to their nature and yes to Christ and put their hope and faith in him because he alone can satisfy and save. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what this text is about. That's what this Bible is about. That's the only news that truly matters. Let's pray. Father God, help us with these words. They're not only true, they're good. For those of us that are trusting in Jesus and came in agreeing with this truth, humble us, producing us more compassion. For those in us in this room who may disagree with this, I pray also that you'd humble us change our hearts and minds so that it aligns with your good word. And those in this room that may be struggling themselves with same-sex attraction, may they know that this church, this little dusty band of pardoned rebels is a safe place for sinners, all kinds of sinners, who will get grace and compassion and love and truth so that we might, they might, we might all take your side against our sin and be with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.